0: and read first from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 25. And then we go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 7, and read the verses 9 to 17. So we start reading at Matthew 1, verse... 18, this is the Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. For the Lord had spoken by the prophets, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now we go to Revelation 7 and read the verses 9 to 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, And honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever amen then one of the elders addressed me saying who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come I said to him sir you know and he said to me these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb therefore they are before the throne of God So far the reading of God's word, let us now sing Hymn 23, the stanzas 1, 2, 5, and 6. t b where we read these words, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. After the proclamation of the gospel, we will respond by singing hymn 69, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we celebrate the feast of Christmas. We remember that some 2,000 years ago the Lord Jesus came to this earth, to this world in which we are living and struggling I should say and eventually die he came as a true human being exactly like us and yet completely different at the same time because he was without sin and he remained God that's why he is called Emmanuel God with us God with us beloved For that's what Christmas is all about. It's a giant step forward in the history of God's salvation. It's the fulfillment of that age-old promise that Satan would be defeated and sin overcome so that the perfection of paradise is regained in which God and man will live together in a communion of love and holiness. Oh, true, Christmas is not the end. There's much more that needs to happen before this perfection will be restored. But Christmas is and remains the beginning of God's final offensive in the struggle against sin. Christmas is the guarantee that nothing will be able to prevent the fulfillment of his counsel. For Christmas tells us that the babe of Bethlehem will save his people from their sins the babe of Bethlehem who received the name Jesus that is Savior oh sure he's also the son of David. that's even emphasized in the gospel narratives and that shouldn't surprise for the Lord had foretold that the coming Redeemer was of royal blood he's not a usurper. he didn't come to fight Satan as a gorilla either But he was appointed by God. He came as the promised Messiah, the legitimate heir of the kingdom of God. And that makes everything so certain and so sure, brothers and sisters. That's why Christmas is such a blessed event. For centuries, God's people had longed for Jesus' arrival. In every age, those who loved the Lord had prayed that his promised salvation might come. And that's what happened in due time. Then the Savior was born to fulfill his mission to bring about the greatest blessing you can think of by defeating the realm of darkness, the prince of this world, the powers of sin and dissolution, in order to bring the kingdom of God to this world and so to give salvation to sinners. That's what Christmas is all about. It's not a romantic event that allows you a brief respite in the world going crazy. It's neither a time of goodwill and cheer that calls you to put your best foot forward. That's what millions make of it. It revives their hope for world peace and their faith in the basic goodness of people. An innocent baby bolstered their dreams for a great future. And so it's an ideal time for some religious introspection that strengthens their conviction that God loves all people. But that's not the case at all, beloved. Christmas has nothing to do with romanticism and neither does it allow you to become nostalgic and even less does it speak of a prosperous future for this world. Christmas, first of all, reminds us of our sins, brothers and sisters. Oh, I realize that sounds ridiculous to many. Fancy bringing such morbid thoughts forward on a day like this, they say. But no matter how people holler, and never mind how Christmas is proclaimed to be a time of optimism and high hope, that will never be realized until we first and foremost see the coming of Jesus occasioned by our sins. Also your sins and my sins. For without those sins, there would have been no need for Christmas. And without God's righteous anger on those sins, Jesus could have stayed in heaven. And that's why we can only celebrate his birth when we look at it from this angle. Here you cannot be a spectator. Here you can't lose yourself in optimistic daydreaming either. Christmas calls for faith. Here you are only blessed when you confess your sins and believe in the only name given under heaven by which a man must be served. And so I proclaim to you the gospel which is contained in the name of Jesus, and we will see the contents, the certainty, and the beneficiaries of this gospel. Jesus came to save, brothers and sisters. Let's put that first. That is the gospel, the good news which the church must proclaim. Oh yes, there's more, much more. The Bible also tells us that Jesus came to reveal what lives deep down in every person's heart, Christmas also shows up the hatred against God and His Word. Psalm 2 tells us that Jesus rules over everything and that He will defeat His enemies, consign them to everlasting perdition when He returns as judge, when this world will grind to a halt on the last day. But never mind how true all of that is, when it comes to Jesus' main mission, it is that He saves us from our sins. And that profound biblical truth immediately defines the borders that must govern our celebration of Christ coming into this world. For as you know, we are not the only ones that rejoice in Christmas. Our Western society is also excited about this event. And they're not only thinking about the lights and the carols, the dinners and the presents and all the other things that come with it. But I'm thinking especially of the religious expectations that run high at this time of the year. For what do most people think of when it comes to Jesus? Even when they have no time for him during the rest of the year. Well, the babe of Bethlehem evokes their dreams for world peace. The nativity scene with its innocence and romance is an ideal picture of what every human being longs for. Whether they call themselves Christians or not is almost irrelevant. Even atheists have no trouble with Jesus provided he's willing to stand for what they are after. And so you witness a lot of hype and activity around Christmas. For Jesus is claimed by all kinds of movements and ideals to embody what their followers believe. Some see in him the man who is against the establishments, the underdog who is not afraid to fight against the status quo. Others hail him as the perfect example of what love and goodwill stand for. Others again see in him the liberator of the poor and the disadvantaged, or the freedom fighter who takes on the capitalists. Or a kind of Santa Claus who loves everybody and never gets angry. But none of these fits the picture the Bible gives of him. All of them are nothing but a Jesus adapted to personal taste and preferences. For what do we learn from our text? What was, why was Joseph told to call him Jesus? for he will save his people from their sins that's why that's the mission god sent him to this world for and what does the word safe presuppose what else but that we are lost what else but that every human being is held in bondage what else but that the whole world stands guilty before a righteous god And if nothing was going to happen, would disappear into eternal condemnation. And that's why the Christmas gospel puts the church at odds with the rest of the world. That's why we can't join in the expectations and dreams that keeps millions busy. That's not the ornaments and the lights as such, nor the dinners or the family visits. But it's because man refuses to admit that he needs to be safe from his sins. (coughs) Oh, there's no opposition to the word safe as such. (coughs) Almost everybody will agree (coughs) that there's a lot we need to be safe from. Our world has a whole list that screams for attention in this regard. Poverty, discrimination... Violence, wars, crime, and you name it. And if you want Jesus to inspire you, well, you're more than welcome. But don't mention his name in connection with sin. Don't insist that the ultimate cause of all the problems in the world goes back to our disobedience in Adam. That's what people don't want to hear. That's what they have no time for for that would mean that they can't live as they please anymore. Do we realize that truth sufficiently, beloved? Are we convinced that at the bottom of all the misery and all the tensions of life, it is sin that's the culprit? And they're not sin as a generic matter or as an abstract truth, but also your sins and my sins? For what has been the problem since our first parents disobeyed God? How come that the perfection of the beginning was lost? What's the reason that no matter how we toil and exert ourselves, many will never enjoy the peace for which he hungers and the joy for which he longs? It's because all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us. That is the problem. Man no longer lives for the glory of God. That's the reason why everything is out of plumb. That's the cause of all the pain and all the hurt in which our world is immersed. When our first parents lived in paradise, everything was perfect. Everything was harmonious. And that's because their life centered around the Lord. He was the goal, the ultimate goal of everything they did. They lived for His glory, and that meant at the same time that there was nothing wanting in their life either. No tension, no strife, no pain, no sadness. There was joy, peace, and contentment. Yes, our first parents enjoyed perfection in communion with God and each other. But when they disobeyed, when they knowingly transgressed God's holy commands, They opened the floodgates of strife and disharmony. Death followed, and everything became dark and despairing because they severed the communion with the Lord. Their life no longer answered to its great purpose, to its created purpose. Their existence missed the basic ingredients for true happiness. That's what the word sins reminds us of, brothers and sisters. For to sin literally means to shoot past the goal or to miss the mark. Now that's what our life is like. Without God's grace, it misses the mark for which it was given. It shoots way past the target which assures us of its contentment. And as long as that continues, as long as people live for their own goals and desires, never mind how religious they call themselves, all our sweating and toiling is a waste of time. And all our dreams will be shattered. All our deepest longings remain unfulfilled. And then we haven't even mentioned the worst of all, and that is the wrath of a holy God. The just punishments our sins deserve, not just at the end of time, not only when we die, but already here and now living under his curse, alienated from the life of God as the Bible calls it, held in slavery to Satan and his realm of darkness and the power of our own depraved nature. That's why Christmas is such a miracle of God's grace. That's why the birth of Jesus ushers in the beginning of a liberation we will not fully realize until paradise returns. For the babe of Bethlehem does not deal with the results of sin first of all, but with sin itself. Jesus goes down to the core of all our problems, and that's our assurance that life does not finish up in everlasting horror but will again be enjoyed in eternal communion with God and the neighbor. Oh, strictly speaking, of course, that communion was already present when God came to Adam with the promise of a Redeemer. Already during the Old Testament, there was a church of God, but that church could only exist because of Christmas. The Lord, in His great mercy, gave them to enjoy the fruit of Jesus' work, even though their work, or that, that work, was still to be accomplished. But at Christmas time, there is a great breakthrough. With the birth of Jesus, the name of Jesus really starts to live up to its blessed meaning, for He will save His people from their sin. He that has the emphasis in the Greek, this little baby, this servant of God, he will do it. For he is the only one who can do it. Because he is both God and man, the perfect mediator given to us by God himself. And how does he save us? Well, we touched on it already. He sets us free from the debt. Our debt to God and from the power that keeps us enslaved. Our debt is not only our sin in Adam, but it includes the sins that we commit every day. It's a mountain of sin that gets bigger all the time, but Jesus takes care of it. He saves us from it. That's what Christmas proclaims. Sure, His birth is only the beginning. It will lead to His crucifixion. It will come to Him being forsaken by God and man when He suffers on the cross in the three hours of darkness where the guilt of this world is settled, where our huge debt is paid down to the last penny and where the justice of God is satisfied. But it starts at Christmas. It begins with His miraculous birth of the Holy Spirit So that He can be our Savior, beloved, by living a life of perfect obedience as the Lamb of God on our behalf. But it's not only the guilt of sin that He takes away. He also sets us free from its awful power. That's why He gives us His Spirit. That's why Christmas eventually leads to Pentecost. Pentecost. But the glorious fruit of Jesus' work is distributed via His church, not only to enjoy the forgiveness of our sins, not only to be ensured, to be assured, I should say, that our guilt has been taken care of, but also so that we are renewed after Christ's image, also so that we are enabled to fight against our sin and no longer having to live under the sway of this terrible monster. For to be saved from sin means to be saved for a purpose, brothers and sisters. The Christmas gospel proclaims loud and clear, Jesus saves, yes, from our sins, from all of them. But he saves unto service. That is for the purpose that we are enabled again to live for the glory of God. And that makes everything so important, brothers and sisters. Oh, there are millions of people who love to go to heaven, but when it comes to their obedience, to a God-fearing lifestyle, to taking up the daily battle of self-denial and putting to death their old nature, they're not home. That's too radical. That's too demanding but that belongs to Jesus saving work you can't have the one without the other for Jesus says the text saves from sin not in sin that is he sets us free to become slaves of righteousness according to Romans 6:18 because he's concerned about his father it is his glory which he seeks first of all and that's why we may never separate his blood and his spirit, brothers and sisters. That's why forgiveness and renewal always go hand in hand because he saves completely and totally. Oh yes, the full benefits of Christmas are dependent on the other redemptive events in our Savior's life. Also here, the Lord works progressively. But Christmas assures us that Jesus' saving work will reach its perfect goal, so that all who trust in Him may know that their guilt is gone and their slavery has come to an end. Shall we not forget the core of Jesus' saving work, beloved? We live in a world where the ravages of sin are widespread, and they don't leave us alone either. But the danger is not imaginary that we become more concerned about the results than about the cause we all like to live in peace we don't like problems we recoil at death and we hope that illness and other adversities will pass us by and if they don't if we suffer setbacks or strife or pain or any other difficulty We sometimes start to wonder, and our faith is severely tried. Oh, it's understandable. It's very human, but it's not right, brothers and sisters. It's not right, for the gospel of Christmas does not promise blue skies and permanent sunshine. Jesus does not save from poverty, suffering, illness, pain, or any other adversity necessarily Sure, it will come the day will arrive that also the results of sin will no longer be found but that's still future that has not been promised until he returns in glory but does that take away from the blessing of Christmas can't we rejoice at the birth of our Savior yes beloved we can for Jesus takes care of our greatest problem by his atoning work He overcame the cause of all the misery that we witness in this world. And so he reconciled us to God. He earned for us the right to live again in communion with our Heavenly Father. That's why he is called Emmanuel. In him we meet the great love of our God. And whatever hardships we endure, whatever pains we carry... Whatever troubles we meet, we find our rest in that blessed reality. Jesus saves from sin, from all of them. That's why we are able to live in peace with God. That's why we no longer have to fear His anger. For in Jesus, our sins have been dealt with once and for all. And that blessed truth allows us to sing even when it is dark, even when our days are numbered. For that truth assures us that at God's time, everything else will also be taken care of. We come to our second point, the certainty of Jesus' saving work. Is this really true? Does Christmas allow us to live in communion with God again? Is He no longer uh, angry at us? Are our sins completely gone? And is it true that our slavery to sin has come to an end? That we are no longer controlled by our old nature because the Spirit of Christ rules the hearts and the lives of the believers? Where do we get the certainty from that all of this is already realized? that believers may live from the joyous truth that everything has been taken care of and that we may live again in sweet fellowship with God. No, brothers and sisters, we're not going to dismiss these remarks as if this is the voice of unbelief speaking. There's also a kind of faith that is too easily taken in with the promises of God. A faith that does not give sufficient weight to the reality of sin and its destructive results. For is it not true that believers are often still disobedient to God? And does the power of sin not still assert itself in their life? Why did Paul, for instance, complain so bitterly when he said in Romans 7, and I quote, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want to, But I do the very thing I hate. (coughs) (coughs) How does that compare with what we said in our first point? Did we perhaps paint a too optimistic picture of the saving work of Jesus? As if everything is fine and nothing the matter anymore? No, that's not the case, beloved. But we have to listen well. Jesus saves us from all our sins. We do not need anyone else besides Him. In Him we have communion with God again. We don't have to fear His judgment anymore. Why can we be so sure of that? Well, because that is the promise of the entire gospel. And you never trust in vain in the promises of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Oh yes, we said it already. There is more that needs to happen than the birth of Jesus. Christmas without Good Friday wouldn't help us. And Good Friday without Easter would also be worthless. And Easter without Pentecost would serve no purpose either. Or Pentecost without Jesus' glorious return. But except for that last one, all those redemptive events have happened, brothers and sisters. And that last one will certainly also occur. You can be sure of that for that's what Christmas guarantees that's why we can speak with such certainty as our text does for instance he will save his people from their sins that's not restricted to a faraway future that's not something you can't, get, can't become sure of yet but this is a glorious fact this is already true Oh, once again, the complete fulfillment will not be seen till the last day. The perfection of Jesus' saving work has not arrived yet. But that does not mean that everything is still uncertain. If the Old Testament believers could already live from the reality that their sins were taken care of, if those who lived before Jesus came to earth could already enjoy communion with God, how much more those who lived after his birth? How much more you and I? God's word is not open to debate. His promises are not yes and no at the same time. God's word is reliable. Not one of his promises will fail. And the one leads to the other way back to the mother promise of Genesis 3.15. The Lord fulfilled them as time progressed. And it is that truth that Christmas underlines. Do you think that God sent his son for nothing? Do you consider the possibility that Satan is able to prevent the salvation of God's church? No way. Oh yes, he tried. And many a time it seemed as if he was successful. But it wasn't true. The Lord moved on during that long history of Israel. And he came to Christmas. Jesus was born as the son of David and the servant of the Lord at the same time. He would bring this creation to its God-ordained purpose. He was going to rule as king of kings, but not until he first of all saved his people. Not until he took the cause of all our misery away. Oh yes, it took time. Christmas doesn't stand on its own. It is followed by the other redemptive events. But Christmas assures us of it. Jesus will save his people from their sins. There's nothing uncertain about that. For when the babe of Bethlehem was born, the humanly impossible became a glorious fact. All during the old dispensation, God's people had wondered how sin Could ever be defeated how Satan would ever be dethroned who was this promised Messiah they asked themselves what kind of a person would he be was there anybody who could pay for man's sin and deliver them from God's curse anyone who could satisfy his holy justice and restore the perfection of the beginning Did sin sin not seem inconquerable? Would there ever be a time that its evil results would no longer be found? Yes, says the gospel of Christmas. Look here, for who is this Jesus? Just a man like the rest, no more than a human being? But if that's the case, what's the point? Nothing will come of God's glorious promises. No matter how sincere, how committed, how dedicated he may be. But that is not the case, brothers and sisters. Jesus is more than a man. He is God as well. That's why the Holy Spirit conceived him in the womb of his mother Mary. And it also assures us of his sinlessness. At Christmas, Emmanuel came to live here on earth. God himself in the person of Jesus made his entrance into this valley of tears. And that's why we can be so certain, for with God all things are possible. The baby will grow up and become a man, and his whole life will be consecrated to the Lord. That's how he could be, the Lamb of God. That's why he could offer himself as a perfect sacrifice. That's how he could appease God's anger. That's how he could deliver us, From the guilt and the power of sin. That's why he rose from the dead and went to heaven, where he received all authority in heaven and on earth. And he sent us his spirit to apply the blessings of his work to the hearts and the lives of God's people. Oh, true, Christmas was only the beginning, but just as a bud will come to bloom and a sapling will grow into a tree, So Christmas assures us that Jesus' work will reach its goal. There's nothing uncertain about it. But what about the power of sin then? And what about our guilt? Don't God's children often have trouble with that? Don't we all have doubts at times when sin gets the better of us? When we fail so miserably to live righteous lives... Which believer would deny that? Which child of God never struggles with these thoughts? But no matter how true that may be, it does not discount the certainty of Jesus' work. Why else can people sing in this difficult life? How is it possible that they are at peace in the face of death? Why do believers take up the battle To fight against their sins every time again. Oh, perfection has not arrived yet. Jesus' saving work continues as long as we live. But the fruits can already be seen and enjoyed. No, not everywhere. And not in everyone either. For Jesus will save his people from their sins. Our last point. And who are they? Oh, if you look at it from God's angle, the answer is obvious. They are the elect. It includes all the men and women, all the boys and girls whom God chose to save way back in eternity already. But that's not the answer we are looking for this morning. Not because it's not important, it is. Because it tells us how certain and how sure our salvation is. But let us look at this truth from our side from what we can see and notice or better from what the Bible also tells us about these people are they all who belong to the covenants or all who belong to the church as we see it no brothers and sisters that's not the case how many covenant children do not die in unbelief how many church people over time did not show somehow or another that they did not really love the Lord. That was true during the Old Testament, and that's just as true during the New Testament dispensation. More than once, there was only a remnant that served God, while the rest lived for themselves. Not necessarily without religion, but without a contrite heart and a childlike faith. And then Christmas came, we read again that the great majority of Abraham see the Jews had no time for Jesus. That's why Jesus said to them, you do not believe in me because you do not belong to my sheep. In other words, Jesus' people are his sheep. The ones who not only hear his voice but also respond to it, who love him, who follow him, also when the going gets tough. Not fair weather, Christians, not gung ho for a while and then saying goodbye to him, but true believers. Or if you prefer it in the words of Article 28 of the Belgian confession, the one and universal, one and universal Church of Christ, and now I quote, is a holy congregation, an assembly of the true Christian believers who expect their entire salvation in Jesus Christ are washed by His blood and sealed by the Holy Spirit. These are the people Jesus saves. These alone. No, brothers and sisters, that does not mean that we slight the covenants, even less that we are left to our own subjective feelings in this regard. When the gospel is preached, All who hear it are sincerely addressed. And the promise of salvation is a reality under which all covenant people may live. But if that promise is ignored or rejected, it will turn against us. If we trust in our descent or in the mere fact of our baptism or in our church membership or whatever else, As if that's sufficient, we ought to take the words of John the Baptist to heart. Then he said to the Jews, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And the Apostle Paul said, for he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly, Nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. Spiritual and not literal. In other words, Jesus saves those who believe and no one else. Does that make them supermen and women? Is this reserved for the spiritual elite? The ones who stand way above the rest? No, brothers and sisters. Not at all. For what is the difference? The difference between believers and non-believers. Between those who are saved and those who are not. It's not that the last ones sin while the first ones don't. It's neither that the first speak about the Lord Jesus while the others never mention His name. (coughs) No, the difference is that believers love the Lord Jesus and as all their sins go to Him, not only to be forgiven, but also to be renewed. The difference is that believers take pains to walk in God's ways and not in their own. Oh, yes, they do it with many shortcomings. Their faith may often be weak <coughs> and sometimes. They may even despair as to whether they're able to go on, but they do. They still sin, that's true, but they cannot live in sin anymore. It gets them down. It robs them of their peace and their joy. And that's why they repent and flee to Christ and love the gospel. They can't get enough of the grace and the mercy of God, and they long for perfection. They feel like strangers in this world they look forward to the day that the Lord Jesus will return and they love their brothers and sisters all who believe in the only Savior oh the babe of Bethlehem has since long gone to heaven now he sits in his father's throne but his saving work continues from every tribe and nation he gathers his people all who come to him In humble faith, and He sets them free, free from that stifling yoke of sin, and He empowers them to live again for God's glory. And so He prepares them for the future that's coming, as we read it from Revelation 7 when Christmas finds its ultimate fulfillment in the new creation, when God's people are all together. Not a handful, but an innumerable multitude, the glorified church of Jesus Christ, where all the results of sin will also be gone, where all our tears are dried and all our struggles are over, and where we will sing, sing, Our salvation belongs to God and the Lamb, where life will be lived to the hilt, because All will revolve around God's glory. After all, that is the reason and the contents of the Christmas gospel. Amen.